Welcome to the debut episode of Podcana, a podcast about Disney's Lorcana, a new TCG. I am Matt DeMarco, a.k.a. Flake. I'm joined by Brendan Patrick, my co-host. And on this show, we bring you all the news, headlines, and strategies about Lorcana. On our first episode, we're going to go ahead and dig into everything that we know up to now about the game. What is coming? What are the dates that we need to take note of? What do the cards look like? Some of the strategies, the product, all that gets looked at on this episode of Podcana. All right, well, Brendan, you and I have tons of experience when it comes to card games. Lorcana is something that you and I have been very excited about. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit first. First of all, how are you doing, buddy? That's that's the number one question. Doing good. Doing great. I'm actually about uh, like two weeks out from a, a marathon, my first marathon. Um, it's, it's probably like three and a half, to be honest. But anyway, that's like the worst time. Uh, it's just like right when you ramp up to the, the highest mileage and it's just kind of a beat down. So I'm excited to start my we call a taper you kind of stop running and then run my marathon and be finished with that to be honest yeah you invited me to that marathon and i believe i said um it was a reluctant sure i'll see um i can honestly say i did not see possibly Uh, because i don't like the way that you're talking about it is like okay now we're like approaching that like tough spot about running all these miles and i have so much respect for you because i know that you mentioned uh to me in previous podcasts and discussions that we've had where you said like running is the one thing i hate the most so we're gonna do that i have you, you gotta slap some respect on that mm, yeah how have you been how is it uh how's it up there in canada it's good dude i'm i'm a little under the weather we're on the recovery process right now but i would be remiss if i did not say that we have to get this podcast underway i think i'm just chomping at the bit to talk about this so i figured let's just let's just buckle down we're loaded with uh green tea and honey and a lot of Tylenol cold and sinus. That has basically been my uh, my nutrition for the past two days. But we're good to go, man. 100%. Yeah, I mean, well, let's talk about this product. I I just want to hit this from like 10,000 feet real quick, too. So we see the the product photo. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see the image. But basically, you know, Lorcana came out with their, their product display, like the multiple things they'll be offering on launch. And I just want to mention, it looks like when I see this image and I see this diverse set of products and I see the packaging, what it tells me is that Ravensburger, or I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, they're, they're doing it right. Like, this looks serious. Like, this is a well-executed and calculated launch, and I'm pretty pumped after seeing this photo. Well, that's, that's like the first, you know, the, like you mentioned, like 10,000-foot view, which is essentially what we get because this image that we're seeing here is of all the products that are currently leaked and released. You have the starter packs, you have the gift sets and all that. And we're going to dig into precisely what all those things are in just a moment. But again, 10,000 bird's-eye view here uh, is that it looks legit. And it's 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 easy to say that um, because it's Disney, but at the same time, there's a lot of other companies that kind of just sort of throw their hat in the rink when it comes to TCGs. But this, it's not just like, oh, here are the cards, you can collect them, have fun. It's like, here are the different ways and avenues that you can explore the game, different sort of points of entry as well. So it looks like Disney, but it also looks like a card game like this mm-hmm. is this is something that you would see on other established tcgs that are out there if they're saying hey here's our new product launch for something big this is kind of what you would see in terms of the what they would offer 
on top of that, this is um, this does not look like set one for a TCG. So a lot of TCGs will use their first set as sort of a proof of concept. They will test the market, um, usually just coming out with a booster box, booster packs, you know, just like really standard stuff. Uh, it's it's their alpha set. This looks like set four, set five. This looks like we've been in a, a few years into the game. Like it, it's so well planned, and it shows that they're setting themselves up to be successful. Like they genuinely believe in this product. I mean, it's being released in multiple languages, which we'll talk about. Um, it's going to be you know, supported with organized play in multiple regions. Like you don't see that when TCG first dips its toes in the water. No, they, like you mentioned, oftentimes I think that uh, TCGs want to sort of, again, like you mentioned, just dip their toe in the water and test the climate and see if it's, if it's palatable. Um, I think that when you're, putting this much work and this many options out there right from the get-go, that means that there's confidence behind the product. And with confidence, you can suspect that there's a deep level of gameplay. And yeah, it's Disney, they'll have, you know, infinite or near, you know, seemingly infinite amount of intellectual property that they can dig into in order to create content. It's not that. I think that if you're putting out this much stuff uh, in different, it's because the next set, chapter two, is gonna be like we have concepts to do all this kind of stuff for chapter two. We'll have a gift set for chapter two. We'll have a, a myriad of different starter decks for chapter two, and they'll feel different, etc. Um, so uh, we should also mention that uh, that's sort of like the grand scheme of what the product is gonna look like. It's a it's a bird's eye view, as we mentioned. But I do want to kind of do. I want to I want to create a little tradition here on the show. You and I, mm -hmm. Brendan. I want to I want to open us up with the Elsa icebreaker question, and I think that this is something that our viewers can also submit as a, as a nice little show opener, something to sort of get the discussion rolling. And I want to ask you: This is our Elsa icebreaker. What's your favorite Disney movie? So my favorite Disney movie is uh, it's definitely going to be a callback to nostalgia. So I got to tell a little story around this, a short one, but you need context when it comes to Disney, and you're 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 my age, right? You're going into your 30s or so oh you're um, beautiful i love you yeah so basically my, my most of my experience with disney movies was i would go to my grandparents my grandparents they owned like a vineyard out in west california um and we used to travel there all the time like i had a, we had a really good relationship we'd go up to their vineyard and i would hang out there as a kid you know drive atvs all that stuff but back then we had vhs and the only movies we had there were disney movies and i have to tell you i probably watched robin hood and the jungle book probably 100 to 200 times each. And if you asked me, you know, gun to my head, what is your favorite movie? I couldn't tell you. But maybe Robin Hood edges out Jungle Book. I just think they're both incredible. I watched them a million times when I was a kid. Um, absolutely love those movies. But, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pumped as we're seeing the spoiler of Robin Hood himself in the color blue, which is uh, my favorite color in most TCGs. Yeah, I know exactly what blue means in a lot of these, especially <laughs> since the fact that you're that type of player in, in most other card games, and that's kind of what worries me. And what's cool is that blue is actually called steel, which is mm -hmm. interesting too. So that's a pretty badass way to uh, to kind of indoctrinate some of the different classes or affiliations of the different cards. We'll dig into that a little bit later. Uh, but that's that's not bad. I mean, you're going way back because Robin Hood and Jungle Book, man, those were like what, like in the 60s, 70s? Oh, gee, those were the ones where, you know, they actually used to draw it by hand, all of that. But, you know, if you're if I'm going back to the ancient days, I got to throw this question back at you, Flake. Well, what is your favorite? <laughs> you make it sound like I was the movie? one who drew them. That's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the case. Um, is it cheating if I if I can like use Star Wars because Dis like Star Wars is now a Disney entity? I, I won't do that because I think that that's cheating. But 
Mm-hmm. Um, for all those who know me, I am obviously a gigantic Star Wars nerd. But but if I were to choose a actual Disney movie, oh, like it's hard not to say. It's hard not to say something like The Lion King. Like The Lion King mm. was truly groundbreaking for what it was. It was like an animated movie that people took seriously. Uh, it, you know, it was. It had James Earl Jones in it, so there's like kind of a little bit of a Star Wars this kind of link to it. But ultimately, I think if if we're talking about animated Star uh, animated Disney stuff, that's probably it for me. Like that's got to be the top tier. I would say stuff like Toy Story, etc. Like these are all fun. I like those, but to me, the OG of emotional connection, of, of, of sheer brilliance, it has to be The Lion King. It's funny you say that because I actually feel like I have a bit of childhood trauma from The Lion King. When, uh, when Mufasa died, it was, it was pretty rough for me when I was a kid. Like, that is a tough scene. In a in a children's movie. Well, what a lot of people discuss is that a lot of, for a lot of of youth out there, that was their first exposure to like an on screen death uh, that like that mattered of a character that they cared about. And like you're not bringing kids to movies to sort of explain to them, you know, what happens after you die. Like this was a sincere, uh, you know, um, a revelation to a lot of kids out there, myself included. Was like. You know, like what the hell's going on here? Like, I, I, it's, it's, it's shocking, and I totally, totally get that kind of emotional turbulence that you get when you see that scene. That whole movie was so good altogether. You can change your answer if you want, by the way. <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm sticking with the Robin Hood. That's, uh, that's a classic right there. All right, so let's get into the actual uh, nitty gritty of what we know so far. We gave you a little bit of a overview of what the product looks like. But what about the release date? The release date is something I think that a lot of people are are very, very in tune for, very, very um, eager to see. And that has also, uh, that's been released as well. Yeah, so, I mean, the release date in local game stores is, it's going to be available in local game stores on August 18th and big box retailers on September 1st, which is great. Like, I mean, first of all, we got to really pick apart that sentence because it's very important. When they say August 18th for local game stores and they say, big box retailers on September 1st, that shows that they're committed to supporting your local game store. And when companies do that, it usually means that they're interested in cultivating a organized play scene. Um, that's honestly not something that I expected to see out of a, uh, a large TCG like Lurkana when I first was exposed to the game. So this is uh, like this is amazing news for people like uh, me and you, Flake, who are actually looking to play this in person with you know at our local game stores. Yeah, that's very adept. Like the, to peel that out of there and when Disney's Lorcana, um, when their Twitter account mentioned, like, and just said, hey, like, this is what we're doing, and it's going to be at LGS's first, that's huge. That that basically shows, like you said, that they want to support the LGS by giving them a head start to that degree, because a lot of people can just go to Walmart, Target, pick up whatever they want off the shelf. There's all kinds of blister packs that you can just peel off of the racks, no problem. But a lot of that doesn't necessarily support the LGSs, and I hope that this is something that they do moving forward uh, for all of their releases, but it is a good sign that this is something that they want to uh, essentially roll over into organized play, into regular tournaments. We've we've heard about you know every every store has like their Friday night magic or they have their their weekday armories for other games and things like that. Like they'll they'll go out there and they'll make sure that there are events for people to play. And I think that this is also uh, also the case is that they want to make sure that these LGSs get a head start to support that local business. We've other games, I mean, they put their product out on every shelf possible. 
you know, that's that's a, a perfectly fine business venture. Obviously, you want to maximize your profits. Ultimately, it's a business. We totally understand that. But nominee are going to go out there and say, we're going to put it on all the shelves, but we want to we want to give the mom and pop stores. We want to give the those local entities that support the culture of the game that that really cultivate it, that that nurture it. We want to give them a head start. So that is really good news. Mm-hmm. It's also good that it's August 18th to September 1st. Like that's not a very long period of time for it to be exclusive to local game stores. But as a consumer and a person that's just looking to play the card game, the big box retailers can help you um, because when a game is only released to local game stores and if it has a somewhat limited release, the local game stores can sometimes affect the price of the product depending on the rules that the um, the, the publisher has put in place. So I assume that on August 18th, it might be a little tight and supply so it might be priced a bit higher but i mean you're looking at two weeks and you're, you're it's out in september 1st at big box retailers so i think this is going to be a super accessible and successful uh, approach to a launch yeah no, that's that's a spot on over there um that's one of the, the the realities of being able to sort of you know msrp is one thing but the 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 key letter in that is s it's suggested right so they can just put it basically slap a price tag on it demand is usually the driving force for what how these prices fluctuate you know we've played enough card games in our life to know that on release day based on supply you can get screwed based off the fact that you just didn't put your pre-order in and it's already off the shelves and you know uh third-party markets or or secondary supply can kind of get expensive after a while but um our first look at the game physically i believe will actually be at gen con well i think that's rumored so maybe right so i i know it's not confirmed yet but the rumors they look pretty convincing um so yeah it looks like the weekend of gen con you might be able to get a few booster packs probably limited per person i mean definitely limited per person um they're gonna put a hard limit on it so that that's exciting and honestly um, it's. I think it only front runs the the release in local game stores by about two weeks. But I will tell you, that's probably enough to get me to fly my way down to Indianapolis. And um, I assume Gen Con is in Indianapolis, like it always is. But uh, yeah, get down to Gen Con and actually check that out. Oh, big time! That's that. That's definitely a ticket. I mean, Indianapolis is not the most flashy city, but if there's a a, a pre-release or a pre-pre-release of Lorcana, you can bet that I'll be there. I think that that is certainly on the radar. Launch of Lorcana uh, initially will be not global, but I don't want to say pretty close because that sounds a little bit North American elitist. But at the same time, there's, uh, there's, it's going to eventually be all over the world from what I understand, but the initial release is going to be limited. Mm-hmm. But it's really good at that, right? We're looking at US, Canada, UK, France, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg um, with languages in English, French, and German. So obviously this is um, this is pretty hard on, you know, kind of like the, the South American TCG audience and in particular um, Asia, right? Like Asia is usually pre- uh, pretty big into paper TCGs like this. And that's, that's going to be rough, but I assume that they'll be supporting those regions pretty quickly. And I'm very excited, to be honest, to see a you know first edition, first time in the market, they're actually hitting the regions that they are. That, that's crazy. To not just release in the US, I think is, it shows a lot of ambition. And I'm, I'm personally you know, very excited for that. Yeah, this again speaks to the fact that they're just super confident in the product. It's Disney, like Disney doesn't go... Uh, it doesn't like half-ass anything. They're gonna they want to launch it, and they want to launch it into as many markets as possible. I think part of this, um, it, the limited release is again the publishing is gonna uh, for the initial print runs is gonna be in English, French, and German. 
And then you basically drop those products in countries where those are the predominant languages, I would imagine, right, to a degree. Um, so I would, I, it's hard not to, to put something out in, like, say, Spanish. It's hard not to put something out eventually in any of the Asian languages. You put it in Japanese, Cantonese, something like that. Because the the player base for that, I mean, for other card games, a lot of the big s s hurrah is when it's like, oh, it's going to be available in Japan. And like that is a huge, huge sort of um, rallying cry for the success of a card game is like, we're going to drop it here and it's going to be a success. Because like you mentioned, they really, really love card games. Um, and uh, Disney, Disney IP is a very attractive IP uh, yeah. overall. And I might be, uh, I might nerd out a little bit here, so uh, I might lose some people. But if you actually look at the current state of the market for TCGs and some of the, the issues that they're dealing with, like printing is a massive issue. So the fact that Lorcana can come in and release in this many languages and support this many regions is actually pretty impressive. Like I've seen multiple other TCGs have to push back releases and just really struggle to get printing allocations. So this is a good sign. On top of that, you know, we talk about Disney this, Disney that, but really the company is Ravensburger and it's the Disney IP. And the way this stuff kind of works to my understanding, which is a bit limited, is that like there are so many, there's a, it's a varying different level of like, you know, if how much Disney will actually be involved in something like this and how much they're actually going to support it. Because there's a lot of IPs out there that will just, you know, they'll loan their IP out to this or out to that. They don't take it very seriously. I see this like this game looks like it has serious funding behind it. It looks like it's calculated and it's set up, to, you know, set up to be successful. What we've talked about. Um, I don't think that that's like something that's just just a given. And it does look like Disney is, you know, they want this product to actually reflect well on their brand, which is that's a really really good thing for people like me and you who are actually looking to play the game. Yeah, no, big time, big time, absolutely. Um, kind of leads me to kind of wonder. Uh, if if this takes off and just becomes massive, what happens to other Disney associated IPs that are also card games like Marvel Snap, for example, and other things like that? I don't think those are going away by any means. I think those are also successful in their own right. But again, uh, like you said, this is Ravensburger. They're the ones who are taking care of this game. They're the ones who are developing, etc. cetera. Uh, and they've got Disney's IP, but they don't just give that out. It's not like, you know, it's not like trick or treat. Here's some Disney IP for you to, to mess around with. Like it's a, they're, yeah. I think that they're very protective of who and what represents their brand. And if, if Ravensburger approached them or, you know, or vice versa or whatever, and it, it, it came to fruition, I think it's because it's pretty damn good. Yeah, so if you want an example of the opposite scenario, you can just go on your phone, go to the App Store, type in Warhammer 40k, or just Warhammer. You'll see a plethora of just garbage-tier games sat right next to high-quality games that were actually you know, developed by you know, real game studios that had funding. Like there's such a wide, a wide variance in the quality that you might get, but it's because that company is willing to sort of loan its IP out to anybody and kind of anything, it seems. Disney obviously at this point is not doing that and i'm very happy to see that the game it, it just it it has it has the ingredients it needs to be successful all right so lurkana uh the products have been released in terms of what you'll be able to buy on day one uh essentially and we're going to start with the booster packs and booster boxes booster packs uh, I've got the, a picture of them over here. You've got Elsa, you've got Mickey Mouse, you've got Maleficent. So there's different versions that you can get, but they're all 12 card packs. And the breakdowns, uh, this is interesting to me because this is something I wasn't 
prepared like i wasn't used to in all the other tcgs i've played in the past 25 years of buying paper product uh until other card games came out uh such as flesh and blood that jammed in two rare or better cards per pack plus a guaranteed foil i think that that's something that's uh, a new kind of trend but lorcana is is kind of jumping on that with their booster pack breakdowns Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the booster pack, we have six common cards, three uncommon cards, two rare, super rare, or legendary cards, and that one foil card. Uh, you'll see an image, if you're watching this on YouTube, of the sort of variations of the boost pack. Looks like we have three, like Elsa, Mickey Mouse, and Maleficent, like you mentioned. Um, but yeah, this is this is pretty stock standard for the, dis- the distribution of a booster pack. I am happy to see that it is one foil card guaranteed per pack and the reason i'm happy to see that is because when that foil is actually not guaranteed you get into this weird scenario where people can potentially like weigh out the packs and it makes it super annoying so i really like it when there's a guaranteed single foil because you get that consistency and you can buy single packs like on the market and it's it's relatively like much more easier on the consumer so I mean, it's it's stock standard, to be honest, uh, to be honest, like it also kind of supercharges the pack potentially like you can honestly open a pack that's like, OK, you got your rare, maybe you score a legendary. And what happens if like the foil card is all, like another super rare foil card? So you can really hit jackpots. I'm sure that once the game comes out, you're going to see Twitter just completely inundated with people's massive pulls, none of which will be me because that's not how <laughs> that's not my luck. But um, the other thing I like about this is that. Six common cards, three uncommon cards. They're kind of cutting down the standard booster pack uh, sort of depth of like 14 to 15 cards and shaving away some of those common cards and perhaps just cutting out a lot of the bulk that a lot of players are going to have. And I know that that's not necessarily perhaps what they're thinking about. They're, when they're designing the booster packs and sort of doing the distribution, they're not saying, oh, Flake just doesn't want to fill another, you know, Amazon box, uh, spare Amazon box with common cards that are just going to sit in the corner. Like, that's not what they're thinking here. But at the same time, I've, as attractive as a 15 card pack is, if it's just three extra commons, it just, eventually it just kind of equates to nothing. So I will, so we'll talk about, yeah, let's talk about that, right? Because like, what does it mean to have less cards in the pack? It does make me wonder... Uh, about the support for limited play so for draft play specifically is this a draftable product is it is it a product that is designed to be played in both constructed format and limited format constructed is obvious right constructed is just i think they've already mentioned maybe you know sort of how these some of these decks are laid out you can look at starter decks it's a signpost we're pretty much guaranteed to have that but limited is not something that i've heard talked about um, and I think limited adds a lot of replayability to TCGs like this. And I hope it's something that we can see in Lorcana past just sealed, right? Because sealed is pretty easy to do. You can kind of make it work in most games. Um, but I would like to see a draftable product. Uh, that might be my personal bias towards that sort of format in a, in a, in a card game. But 12 card packs, um, they are a bit, uh, that is a bit of a low number. It's a bit tight. Yeah, that's that's definitely a worrisome thing unless you sort of perhaps do something like, given the fact that there's, color associations uh to the cards and we don't know what the deck building restrictions are yet we're very in the dark in terms about what are the news was trust me i've done my best to actually knock on Lorcana's door and inquire i've sent them i've made contact with them we've we've established contact with disney Lorcana, um but i asked them a few questions completely understanding that it was a a, a total shot like moonshot to see if they'd actually give us anything and uh, they were gracious enough to reply and, and be very kind, and we've, we conversed a bit, but uh, they didn't really spill the beans in terms of much. So uh, if it is draftable, maybe you need a four-pack draft 
because of the potential mm. restrictions. So you need more cards to sort through. But then again, if it's a if there's very restrictive color associations in terms of cards, maybe the drafting becomes exceptionally difficult. Yeah, I'll tell you, Flake, that if there's <clears throat> any hope of this game being draftable at all, whether they give us guidelines or not, people are going to try to do it, and it's going to be a format that uh, people will definitely try to make work. And like you said, if you are working with 12-card packs, you can always potentially add in that fourth that fourth pack, and then boom, you're right there. You're up there at those nearly that 15-card pack distribution anyway. Let's go ahead and get into these uh, these starter decks, because this has got me excited, Flake. Um, so we're going to, it's again, it's on YouTube if you want to see the image here. But we have, you know, these are starter decks of 60 cards, including two foil cards of the characters on the front of the package. There's 11 in-game tokens. That's, that's a lot of tokens. One rule book, one booster pack containing the 12 randomized cards, like above. And the color distributions here are gold and black, uh, which is amber and amethyst. Green and red, which is emerald and ruby. White and blue, which is sapphire and steel. So... Six colors. That's a bit unusual, right? I mean, that's, that's one additional color to what you'd be used to in something like Magic the Gathering, which I do see a lot of correlations so far um, because we do have a somewhat of a color pie. <laughs> but we'll get into potential win conditions and things like that and how this game is actually going to play out because I think it might be a bit different from Magic. But yeah, I'm super excited about this, Flake. I love seeing these these different colors and these different identities that sort of give players a way to empathize and build the deck that they feel sort of defines them in the game. And, you know, for me, that is pretty much off the concept of the, you know, fun is some zero and I will be having all of it. So I will be playing blue almost surely, but not going to lie. I looked at the green card. <clears throat> I forget. I forget the, um, the lady's name. That's uh, Cruella DeVille. And Cruella DeVille. She would not appreciate donations. you forgetting her name. Yeah. That is like the most controlly card I saw out of any out of any any of the releases. But anyway, Flake, your thoughts on the on the starter packs? I'm also really excited to see this because starter packs are great for tabletop. This is amazing for casual. These this is like a sort of dual deck dual deck esque system. This is a perfect introductory product, and I think it's a huge miss when other TCGs release without this kind of thing. Well, if we just kind of take a look at the history of other card games, specifically, you know, Magic is essentially just synonymous with the colors and what they identify. You can kind of say, well, green is a lot of creature-heavy big stuff. You know, blue is uh, card draw and denial. Uh, black is destruction and manipulation, things like that along those lines. And I, I have a feeling that that's what the identities of these different colors are going to be. I don't know if they're just going to shift. And, you know, from the, the standard being blue is that kind of card draw, manipulate, you know, denial kind of, uh, you know, z net or uh, z uh, fun is a zero something kind of thing, like a net zero th mm -hmm. something. So uh, what I appreciate about this is that the fact that you can, you can kind of tailor what you want to do. So if you are all about, you know, a big stompy going face, you could probably find a color that has the big creatures and uh, the bigger the bigger product. If you have stuff that just plays within the margins, that plays within the, the micro decisions, I'm sure you can find something along that. The fact that there's six colors makes me wonder where those identities are going to fall and what those extra identities are going to be. Is it, you know, you have to split those up to a degree if they want to kind of really isolate each of these color palettes as being a particular play style. But that makes me excited because if it's, if you can, this is where players start to identify with, you know, they might identify with characters, absolutely. But 
you might just identify with a playstyle and say, I just want these cards, or I just want to collect this color, I'll buy all these starter decks, I'm gonna bling out this deck, and whenever new cards come in, that's what we're gonna do. And I really, really like the fact that, uh, you know, the first uh, the first rendition of these starter decks doesn't mess around. They're not just monocolor decks. They're they're mm-hmm. dual decks. So there's they're already starting players off on a journey of understanding how the colors relate to one another, and I think that's important. So Flake, let's go a bit tinfoil hat. Tell me, <laughs> what does eleven game tokens mean? Because that is a lot of freaking tokens. Well, th- okay, this is the uh, we don't know if they're like little counters like little tokens mm-hmm. actual physical you know beads or or little coins or something we don't know if they're actual cards that are tokens that have representation of something 11 tokens and the thing about it also is that it's not it's 11 tokens around or, or across the board right yep it, so, so not just like the green deck or the white deck that has these you know these little soldiers or whatever no this is 11 tokens across the board what does that mean? Are we is that hint towards maybe an alternate win condition from potentially reducing your opponent's life total to zero? I my suspicion is that eleven game tokens are gonna revolve around resources that you that you have. I think that if you're playing a starter deck and that has eleven game tokens in them, and we're gonna go down into the other products, and I'll tell you why I think this. Yeah. I think that the starter decks are going to be kind of like the the quick version of a game. There's a constructed version, and then there can be sort of like a, a, a toned down or quicker version with half health totals or something along those lines. I think that these are like, okay, you, you have 11 game uh, game tokens, and maybe each game token represents like, okay, this, this is 10 life, this is 5, and then you have like 5 of 1, mm-hmm. so you can kind of just make your life total associated with what that is. And then there's other game tokens that are things like damage counters or things like that i think that's what what those have to do with uh but it might also just be a matter of saying okay on turn one you get one resources on turn two you get two and these are just tokens to sort of keep track of how many resources you have and how many you have left and things along those lines but um that's kind of my initial thought process i the first thing that crossed my mind wasn't necessarily like okay the tokens are are a win condition associated thing. I thought it was more so along the lines of these are just extra things that you can just literally buy the product off the shelf and play it with somebody. Yeah, and I do think that that's actually more likely. It's just fun to to sort of um, oh yeah sort of guess at the the alternate win condition because you look at a game like Keyforge, right? It has because reducing your life po- uh, your life your your opponent's life total to zero is just like the most standard win condition in TCGs. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Ravensburger switch it up. Not as that's they get rid of that win condition altogether, but there maybe is other win conditions. I also think the resource system, potential resource system, is fascinating in Lurkana. It, it is like, if you took everything at face value, it does look like they're setting themselves up for a, a mana-based system or a land-based system, right? It, it looks like that. You have the color differentiation. You have, um, you know, cards cost at one, two, three, four, five. Like, it, it just, it looks like that. But I personally don't think... <laughs> That uh, Ravensburger is going to is going to use that design space. I think it's a bit outdated. I think that you know Magic sort of operates in that space, and I think that newer TCGs have have moved away from it. Um, they could they could they could use that, but I think that uh, you know that's that's one of the spiciest things to sort of speculate on here is the resource system. And because we see the colors, is it going to be a land based system? Is well, it going to be these lands you draw from your deck? Yeah, no, that's a very good that's a very good point. Like these could actually just be lands that get shuffled into the deck 
that you then play. And I, I honestly like, believe that that's a that is a detriment to the game because if you but flake they're not. You want to know why? Because there's eleven and there's sixty cards in the deck. I highly doubt those are lands. Yeah, that's a good point too. That's definitely a good point too because you want to talk about land screw. Like this is <laughs> yeah. is going to be an epic. Your deck. Oh my god, forget it. Like that's not how this is going to go. Every sixth card is like actually going to help you. That's not not the way that it goes. I think it, everybody I've spoken to from the Magic community where you ask them something, one of those like age-old questions, of like, what's the one thing about magic you would change? The first thing that they always say is like the land system, the mana system is just, it's so bad. Like it's it's just, it feels so bad because there are, there are games that just don't get played. They're just one-sided and then they're scooped. So uh, I don't think that they're going to do that. Maybe they're doing something along the lines of like a ramp system, much like Hearthstone or other games like that, where you just get one more every turn. And perhaps one of these color-based systems is like a, a, a ramp color you know that just gets gets you above value or gets you ahead of your opponent in terms of resource allocation who knows um like i said episode one of pod Canna, man we we did our best to get as much information as possible but uh ravensburger are very tight-lipped on on all this stuff mm -hmm. well let's talk about that gift set so again popped up on youtube here if you want to see but it's two oversized foil cards i know you have something to say about this flake which i think is particularly interesting uh two playable foils 34 tokens. <laughs> what the heck? Um, and four boosters. So, I mean, two major things to unpack there. The two oversized foil cards and the 34 tokens. It's like, go. Okay. So, few things. Number one, I want to just make a quick uh, note that there are oversized cards in this. Oversized cards in other card games have always been, have always been playable. And that sounds ridiculous. But the first, uh, the first card game that I've ever seen do this is not Magic. It's Star Wars CCG, and the only card that they oversized printed was card was the only card in the game that started on the board. So they pr oversized printed those, and people would go to tournaments and be like, "Bam!" and they'd slam it down because it was hilarious and it was just fun. But it was playable. It was perfectly legal. Magic in their commander sets would release commander their commander decks, but they would also, in those packs that they would sell, would have oversized foil versions of the commander. So you could show up, jam it on the board, and it was hilarious, and just another way to play. If they're printing oversized cards in a gift set like this, with a scaled-down version of the card as well, because they say two oversized foil cards and two playable foil cards. So what they're saying is that you could play the small one, no problem, but the oversized card, in my opinion, is going to be something along the lines of like a quote-unquote commander or a, a hero card that you basically start the game with access to. It's a card that does not get shuffled in the deck. It's a card that you start on the board with. That is my suspicion. So I will push back. Oh, it's so weird because I, honestly, if you zoom into this thing, because you can see the freaking tokens as well, and yeah. there's these little circular coin tokens maybe for flipping a coin see who goes first you pick the one that you like whatever 34 my put yeah well i think there's other tokens. Yeah. yeah but my pushback on the oversized cards being commander-esque you know like these cards that exist kind of outside the game that are that are playable is that if you zoom in at the bottom you can you can see these cards right you have an eight drop which i think is the highest one of the highest cost cards you've seen in the form of hades um, and then you have a five drop and move on. And the card templating looks quite similar to everything else we've seen revealed so far. So it looks like, it, to me, it looks like these are normal cards and this is a additional piece for a collector's item, right? Because it's a gift set. 
I do think you're onto something because, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. I think that it feels like a weak thesis when I say it, right? It doesn't feel like enough, right? It doesn't feel like enough for me to you know, just get these big cards so I can just have them, look at them. I like Mulan. I like Hades. It feels like they got to have a function. The only thing that pulls me away from it is when I zoom in and look at the bottom, the card typically looks almost identical to what we've seen. We have an 8-drop in Hades, 5-drop Mulan, um, and yeah, they just look like standard cards. That's, again, without knowing the rules, uh, speculation is basically all we, the only wind beneath our wings to sort of go through. But I like that you mentioned that we see tokens. In 34 of them, we see two of them on the actual gift set itself, the Hades, or it could just be, uh, it could just be, you know, flipping a coin to see who goes first. But if there's 34 of them, I would, yeah, sus I would honestly suspect that this is a, a resource system. To, it's a way to keep track of it. It's, and again, there's, you know, um, in in the next episode of Podcana, we're going to actually go into the anatomy of the cards and dig deeper into what a lot of the numbers might mean or what they might represent. But I think it's fair to say that there's going to be an attack value and a, a defense or health value on the cards. And I think that if you're if you're kind of having um, this this combat system between the the cards themselves that you're going to have to keep track of damage somehow. This is not a digital game, and keeping track of damage is an important metric and important element to how this goes. So I think that it's, yes. it might be a matter of like, okay, Mulan bumps into Hades. Hades takes a little bit of damage. He took four damage or whatever, so we'll drop four counters on him. Yes, so I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that, and we'll definitely dig into that next episode. But I hope, I hope, I hope they do not have persistent damage in this game represented through tokens. That is, uh, in my in my experience, that is a just a very clunky system for a physical card game. Is using these dice to represent dynamic life values on cards. I'm I much prefer the the magic system where you know it's either exists or it does not exist. It can have negative counters on it, but those are more niche rather than you know creating the damage set. But yeah, let us know in the YouTube comments below what you think these 34 tokens are. <laughs> like what what is this gift set too? Because like it, honestly, when I look at the product, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's four boosters. That's effectively the only like normal product you're getting. Then it's these two oversized cards, which who knows what the heck those are. You get these other, these two foil cards, which are on the thing. It's like, can you get this foil in a normal booster pack? Like what are these? But it seems like the main offering here is like 34 tokens. And like, what the heck are those things? Oh, yeah. I mean, if they're nice tokens, if they're like metallic like you know weighty style tokens like maybe i'll go ahead and pick something up like this again before booster packs for me is again like you mentioned like that's the attractive point but we're coming from a position of we want to play the game we want to sit down we want to compete we want to you know uh, play in tournaments and, and really have that kind of experience so something like the gift set is not meant for us it's meant for uh perhaps the collector populace who are going to be interested in the game this really kind of sets the tone for me that this is a game that's going to kind of be positioned much like Pokemon because Pokemon had tons of these come out where a new set will come out. The, the, the hardcore tryhard sweaty players are going to go and buy booster boxes and crack packs and buy singles. And the casual collectors who are fans of Pokemon in general, the games, the creatures, everything, the, the whole lore of it are going to go ahead and buy the box set because they know what they're getting. They're looking at the box set and say, Hey, my favorite Pokemon is I don't know, Clefairy or whatever, and here's a box set that has that particular card, a foil version of it, an oversized version of it, tokens that represent that hero, or that, that Pokemon, rather. I'm going to get that because I like that. Now, that's not to say that there's no appeal in this, because who knows? I might pick up a deck and be like, dude, Hades is my jam. 
and I want to bling that out. I'm going to go pick up this gift set because I want that foil Hades. I want the the Hades tokens, and you know, I want to show up with you know, like uh, this gigantic surfboard sized Hades to jam on the board when I'm when I'm sitting across the table. So uh, I'm getting a lot of vibes that Lorcana is positioning itself to really attack both ends of the of the card game uh, spectrum being competitors and collectors mm -hmm. awesome well i want to get to some cards in this podcast so, so let's cruise to this last product offering which is the illumineers trove this is one storage box two deck boxes eight boosters 15 tokens one guide um and then you get sleeves deck boxes play mats are those are those in this product or those additional like the the sleeves oh no sorry those are the, the those, notes, are those are those are additional things that's my bad um so but it's the one storage box the two deck boxes correct. the eight boosters so it's a good amount of boosters so like the main addition here is um i mean the guide is pretty reasonable too if that's if it's like the best presentation for the rules um but the two deck boxes and the storage box we see this this is a very common offering in tcgs um it's kind of like a collector's thing uh, you know, some people like it, some people don't, but this is more like if you want like a Lorcana storage box, you want a Lorcana deck box, this is a way to get to acquire that while you also get some some booster boxes, uh, some booster packs as well. All right, so here's my little, like you said, you want to put on the tinfoil hat? Here's my tinfoil mm -hmm. hat. The previous product, 15 tokens or 34 tokens. And my assumption is that you get like, what, 17 on each side. So 17 Mulan, 17 Hades. Mm -hmm. My guess is that the Illumineer's Trove is 15 tokens, one from each playable hero, quote-unquote. So oh, I man. think you're getting one Mickey, you're getting one Maleficent, one Elsa, one Robin Hood, one whatever. I don't know. The, again, this is all speculation, and I know that in like 10 or 15 or 20 episodes from now, we're going to look back at this episode and say we're all idiots. But at the same time, who knows? I'm, 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 I'm shooting my shot on this, and I suspect that it's going to be one of each hero. But what I like about this product is that this is, this is a kind of jump starter move to get somebody who's interested in the game and say, all right, now you got two deck boxes, you got the guide. And I like the guide because the guide is when – I, when I used to play Magic, I used to get their, um, their bundles or whatever, which was like 10 booster packs. Uh, you get like – that set's particular breakdown of all the cards, the lore behind that particular set. You get like a D20 and, and a, a random like stamped foil or something like that. This kind of gives me those kinds of vibes, but this one's like just goes above and beyond because it also offers you a guide to the game. Uh, it offers you the deck boxes, the storage boxes. This is something I think that you're going to get somebody who might not necessarily be a card game player yet. I think that that's mm -hmm. what this is. But I also believe that this is probably going to be the most coveted piece that people are going to buy and leave sealed and stored on their shelf as like a collector's item. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's just talk about these sort of last product offerings that they've hinted at. I mean, we don't really have a lot of details on, but that's sleeve, sleeves, additional deck boxes, play mats in portfolios. So like binders to have your cards with room for oversized cards. Um, not much to say about this, but uh, other than like if a TCG is releasing with these kind of products, it's pretty impressive. Well, like again, Normally, a TCG would release with like just booster packs, just cards, see if people like the game, you know, see where it goes. But to invest this much in like these products, which are pretty hard to make, you know, the deck boxes, the sleeves, and the playmats, it's just it's just showing they're, that they're really trying to, see, I don't know, like hit the ground running. So uh, I'm impressed, to be honest. The biggest uh, thing about this is that they're coming out of the gate with playmats. So what do you need playmats for? To 
play competitively. So I think that mm-hmm. this is a thing where they're they have organized play in mind, and they are they want to already sort of tell the players like, hey, you want to go to a tournament, you want to you want a, uh, a Lorcana play mat, we've got you covered. And I think that that's a no brainer for them if they're planning on uh, supporting organized play. So funny, because you said, what do you need playmats for? And I was like, to just sit in my closet and fill up space. <laughs> hundreds of playmats, yeah, which I'm sure a lot of people have. All right, Flake, let's, uh, let's talk about some cards. This is going to be great. I, I just want to go back to something, too. You mentioned like hero-based gameplay. So if you look at the cards, it doesn't, it doesn't look like that because we have these ascending and uh, sort of these ascending and descending man- uh, resource values. It looks like you're, you're casting heroes. So I don't think it's going to be like a flesh and blood version of heroes, which is good. I actually think that the flesh and blood hero uh, game design is actually kind of limiting in like a larger scale kind of scope. Um, but you could have a version because with the oversight cards where maybe you have a card that starts as like sort of a Magic the Gathering-esque commander and then you can cast it from that zone into the game rather than you know, having to draw and play it. Just my two cents there. Let's start with the first one. Again, image on YouTube. Uh, this is going to be, we assume that this card is at common. That's why we're starting with it. So this, and I'm reading off a Locana card for the first time live. So I'm going to try to go from like left to right, but you know, maybe we'll figure out a better version later. But the Captain Hook, the Forceful Duelist, it's a one cost, one power, two defense, um, is the keywords, <laughs> Dreamborn, Dreamborn, Villain, Pirate, Captain. Uh, the, the text on the card says Challenger plus two, which means while challenging, this character gets plus two attack. I assume challenging is, is an assumption, but is when, you know, fighting another character effectively. Um, and yeah, there's this little thing in the bottom right, which I don't even know what to call that. That's like a little diamond, a little pip. I don't know. DM Armada was, I watched his video where he was speculating on this. We have no freaking idea what that is, but it's definitely critical. Um, it seems that the cards do ascend in like there's an ascending value with like the higher resource cost it is, the more kind of pips or diamonds, whatever you want to call it, on it. Um, but yeah, I won't, I won't, I won't go too much into that. Um, your initial thoughts, Flake, and what is this? Uh, what's the element called for Captain? Okay, so the, uh, he's a he's steel, is he not? Mm-hmm. I believe he's steel. Steel, yes, steel. So he's steel, which is fascinating. Uh, Challenger to me, I think, is just whenever you defend against another attack. Is what mm-hmm. I'm, I'm anticipating mm-hmm. here. Um, but the when I was going through the the card releases on the Lurkana video that they put out, um, I, I I kind of I isolated these cards because these were the cards that were actually released at like uh, the Disney event, the Disney mm-hmm. uh, the Disney uh, celebration event or whatever. But they didn't have the rarities on them. They were stamped with the Disney Disney event. Now we have a, a better idea of what the the rarities look like, and I suspect that the circle is the common card. But all, overall, over here, that pip. If you want my advice of what that pip is, should I say it now or should we should we save should I save it for the for episode two when we dig into the anatomy mm-hmm. of the cards? No, no, you got to say it now because everybody's looking at this, being like, "What the heck is that thing?" All right. So my first impression was that this was a sort of a a evolutionary level of the card like you can Mm. get a another captain hook that maybe is two pip that is a better version that you can draw and upgrade your original captain hook and he kind of gets better so a one pip can become a two pip and but you can't play a three pip on a one pip unless you have a card or something that allows you to do so or whatnot then the other thing i thought of which was actually uh suggested by dm armada which i'm i'm kind of coming around to 
he said it's something along the lines of if you defeat this character, you get this as a you get like a prize or you draw a card or something like that. But then I thought differently. I thought that this is this is an element I think that is um, from Young Jedi, a, car, a very very old and very very short lived uh, Star Wars card game that was again minion combat. But when one of those minions died, there was a damage associated to it. And damage was how many cards you basically peel off the top of your card. I'm thinking that this might be like a penalty if this comes gets off the table. What that penalty is? Do you lose a life point or a health point or or something associated to to your to your win condition or your or your overall health? That is also something that I'm thinking about. There's so many wild ideas that I have, but I will say this: this is the one question I really wanted Lord Canada to answer, and I asked them. And they were like, I, uh, they specifically said, as for the pips, we are tight-lipped about this. This is the one thing that we will not share at all. And that's that's unfortunate for us, but I get it. So that that's actually a good hint, though, because I think that if this was like, okay, say that we had a magic base or like a magic land resource base, right? Say this was like the devotion to that color-esque that you needed to cast. Like you needed one steel land to cast it. Or, you know, like if we look at Elsa next, it has one pimp, but it costs three. You can two resources of any color and then one of um, of the purple color or whatever, the black color. I don't think that's what that is. Because if that was what it was, they would tell us, and also it would be kind of boring. I think it's associated with wind conditions, like you said. It's really interesting, because you talk about creature-based combat. So, like, the the, wind can, the the way to win is, you know, killing creatures and things like that, rather than there being this external force that you're outside of creature-based consciousness, like going face, you know, having this base life. Um, that's interesting. Uh, I haven't played any games with that kind of uh, that kind of game system before, but I do think that this is absolutely critical to like the core function of the game and probably the core way that you win and lose the game uh, because they're being so secretive about it. You know, like uh, I have no idea. <laughs> well, uh, if we think about it this way, like what you're mentioning, if there, if you kind of you don't necessarily have to completely take out the face aspect of it because one of the things that people just don't like is when there's a meta where just just like point click and throw to face you know hearthstone's mm -hmm. had it magic's had it forever you know red deck wins kind of stuff like that i think what this might be is like you know you could still have those hyper aggressive go face decks but a lot of the things that uh, occur in those decks is that the the player who is being the aggressor will never get punished uh, on their life total because a lot of the work that occurs oftentimes is to take care of the of the of the creatures on the board mm -hmm. to but if there's a penalty to those creatures dying, you don't feel as bad removing those creatures or banishing them, let's say, in this game, because banishing them also does work against face. So you're getting rewarded and you're actually putting in some work in that sense. So that's why I might think that that's what it is. But, um, you know, if we move down to Elsa, which I think you and I have sort of had, came to the conclusion that this is the uncommon uh, rarity, as mm -hmm. you can see at the bottom of the card. Elsa is already giving me vibes of perfectly what I want to play which is mm. freeze, exert an opposing, uh, an opposing character. Like things like this are absolutely my jam. Control, you know, slowing the game down. Elsa already feels like precisely what I want to be playing. Yeah, so let's read it off. Uh, we'll have the image up on YouTube. But Elsa is a three uh, a three cost. It's Amethyst as well. Um, uh, two power, three defense. Uh, uncommon, of course. The the text says freeze. And it has what I think is a tap symbol. Um, exert chosen opposing character. It has one pip. Um, and the sort of 
don't know what you call it. The subtext being Dreamborn, Hero, Queen, Sorcerer. Oh, interesting. 41 out of 204. I never really looked at that number. That's that the number other thing. Particularly interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That number is particularly interesting. Anyway, yeah, it does look good. This is a very, this is definitely a controlling S card. It is interesting because it is it's super one for one, right? And it probably puts you behind on tempo, which makes sense because this is a, um, it's a two, three, right? You're going to have to have external factors working with this, whether you're removing other creatures you know, you're killing other creatures with your other your other things on the board, or you're removing things with spells, and then you're also, you know, tapping down or exerting um, the most powerful thing your opponent has on the board. Um, but yeah, look, it's kind of a signpost for black being a maybe a more controlling uh, controlling color or Amethyst, sorry, um, at the very least, right? Usually, these color identities will have multiple archetypes built within them. But we do see the power level of the three costs. We have the the, the text ability, um, which is definitely a very relevant ability, and on top of that is a two attack, three defense. I'm, I'm really interested, Flake. So in Flesh and Blood, a game that you and I are both very familiar with, people sort of cracked the mathematical code. And it's, it's not really a secret, but there is like a fundamental like mathematical algorithm in which everything sort of is designed on, right? Most cards add up to this like magical number of eight. Um, some people use a different number, but it's, it's all the same. And from there, you can look at individual cards and sort of understand where they've had points of value subtracted, right? So, like, how much is exert opposing character worth? I'm particularly interested for someone to do that with Lorcana, so we can kind of see what the what the average value of a of um of a card is, right? Based off the mana curve, based like what are the, what is sort of the vanilla stats, and then where do we find those cards that are potentially uh, above rate? Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a metrics that are, are going to eventually get broken down. As much as people want to open packs and put them cards in binders, there's people who actually just want to create spreadsheets and figure out the magic numbers, right? Um, the next card up is in the rare category, as we can surmise. It's going to be Robin Hood, Unrivaled Archer, six cost. It's a four and four. Uh, it's got a bunch of game text here, and, uh, including an, an interesting uh, keyword called evasive, which means that they can challenge characters with evasive. This has to deal with uh, if in Runeterra there's an evasive mm -hmm. or e e um, evasion or evasive uh, el elusive. That's the one. Elusive in Runeterra, where elusive characters are kind of like they're they're shrouded, they're they're stealthed. They can only be challenged by other stealthed or or other in this case evasive characters, which is kind of on point and on brand for what uh, what Robin Hood would be. Yeah. I Honestly, like some of the, there's kind of a lot of things that are jumping out at me when I read these cards that remind me of Runeterra specifically. Um, but let's go ahead and read the text on Robin Hood here. The first, uh, the first line is this ability, feed the poor, um, or passive ability that is. When you play this character, if an opponent has more cards in their hand than you draw a card. Now that's, that's some text right there. I love that. That's great. Uh, and then the other text here is good shot. During your turn, this character gains evasive so like like was saying with evasive and it has two pips on it feed the poor man i'll tell you that uh that's an ability that gets me pretty excited yeah it's blue too man so this is like absolutely yeah. your wheelhouse anytime you can you know draw cards good friend of mine majin bay who's also a runeterra character like whenever we talk about card games he's like dude whatever the deck is that draws me cards that's what i want to play so uh i always feel like any catch-up mechanic is always very important anytime that you're falling behind and you could get value from that fall behind point i think is is awesome uh you know card but like the thing about things like that is that they are very 
uh, fragile. They're they're usually mm. teetering on an edge. We've seen it in card games like Flesh and Blood, where a card like Awakening was the ultimate catch up a cannon mechanic in in to the degree where it was actually to your advantage to fall well behind. Um, that is a, a balance. I think that this card will probably get right. I mean, if you're falling behind on cards, whether it's 10 cards or one card, you're still drawing a card. And I think that in any card game, having access to more of your resources, more of your solutions, more of your threats is always a good thing. So, yeah, this is just a two for one, right? Um, the thing is, it costs six. So that looks quite expensive in the context of all the cards that we've seen. Um, like in the example that used of Flesh and Blood, Awakening costs literally nothing. Just the opportunity cost of having it in your hand and putting it in your deck. So that's why we got that bologna sandwich that was that card. But uh, yeah, six costs. Six costs is very looks very expensive, you know. Um, but it's a great ability. Like I think I think it's an awesome ability. It doesn't really look. It, it looks less controlled. You know, feed the poor is actually not a very controlling ability. It's a tempo ability because when you play feed the poor, you definitely want to have less cards in your hand than your opponent. And generally, that's not what controlling is do. Controlling kind of really conflicts with that. So I think that bloom, at least this is a signpost for a more tempo, a tempo based color. Yeah, yeah, sapphire is the color. Yeah. Whenever you have evasive, like the first thing you're thinking about is like, hey, I just don't want people to block me. I don't. I just want to be able to do what I do and make it awkward for you. I want you to to have to deal with this in non-traditional ways or unorthodox ways and then that's what it means and i think you're right if 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 this is printed on the card it's because it wants to be in a deck that is dumping its hand like rel relatively frequently it wants to always play cards it doesn't want to wait it wants to be the the protagonist here so um after that we got uh, oh sorry go ahead I just wanted to point out that I'm really I'm really happy with the evasive mechanics so far the fact that evasive uh you know heroes cards whatever you want to call them can challenge each other it's interactive right like we've seen abilities in other card games that you know use this uh use this kind of function but they make it not interactive right so like this isn't like a magic gathering reference this isn't like a true name nemesis or something like you can interact with this card you can have cards that counter this card etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'm happy to see that um so far but let's go ahead and hop into what we think is the super rare yeah the super rare is cruella Deville, uh, of which you forgot her name incredible she had 101 dalmatians and bet you can name those we that. can't name her uh corella deville is a two drop uh one three stat line she's the she's miserable as usual brendan uh or she's a story Sounds, can relate to that <laughs> uh she is a storyborn villain and her ability is you'll be sorry and i like this it says when this character is challenged and banished you may return chosen character to this player's hand. So this could be a recursion effect to rescue something you have on the board that may have a cool deploy effect. Uh, it may also just put one of their characters back into their hand. They may have spent an entire turn deploying something fat, and you just say, all right, you killed my Corella Deville. Uh, this goes back to your hand. This card is actually so interesting. So we see like what is kind of like a graveyard interaction in Emerald here, which stock standard, right? But... Cruella de Vil, it's like, is this card strong or not? Because this is enter the battlefield effect and you're returning, you know, chosen card to your hand. You're kind of recurring your most powerful card, recurring your win condition. That, that would be good. This character is challenged and banished. So I think your opponent has the ability to just not interact with it and take the one damage. Yes. Um, and we talked about, we talked about, you know, minion combat, right? Minions attacking minions. This idea of being challenged is interesting, right? Because then I think that hints more towards like going face, 
than it does towards like attacking a minion. Because if you attack a minion, does it challenge you back? And does your opponent, does they, are they challenging or are they not when you're getting attacks? It's only if you interfere with another minion. So I think that's actually pointing towards like a, you know, this omnipotent, you know, omnipotent player being entity that exists as like the, the, the life total you're trying to take down. Like that's what you're attacking. Um, but yeah, Cruella Deville, super, super powerful ability. Um, it looks like your opponent can actually avoid it and just take the one damage. So maybe you equip some equipment on this. So we haven't seen the equipment yet, but you know, make it more powerful. Make your opponent sort of pay for uh, for for not interacting. Well, that's that's the payoff, right? It's like okay, like there's a very detrimental effect to it if you do want to get rid of it, but ultimately you're you're just getting you know poked over and over and over again. Um, finally, there's the legendary category of rarity, as we see here on Maleficent. But uh, this is a fat nine drop. So Hades wasn't that big at eight. I mean, it was pretty big, but nine, I think, is the biggest that we've got over here. It's a seven five. Uh, what we see on the on the card here, it's a seven five monstrous dragon, storyborn villain dragon. Two pips. Got the nice golden sort of rarity stamp that we uh, we suspect is legendary. But the game text for this one, Brendan says, dragon fire. When you play this character, you may banish chosen character. It just eats something. Yeah, straight up two for one indiscriminately. It's funny because uh, we'll talk about it in the next episode, but there's also a spell um, that does the same effect. Like Dragonfire is a card um, as well. But, you know, Ma uh, Maleficent, or it's a hard name for me to say. It's just like straight up two for one. Um, this, is, this is a great card. Pretty expensive at, at nine. Um, I have no idea like the consistency at which games will go to that nine resource and how frequently you can you can deploy a card like this and at what cost. Um, but you know, certainly powerful in terms of uh, in terms of raw stats and ability, and you know, makes sense makes sense in red to be honest. Yeah, I think it's one of those decks that are probably just going to be like we'll we'll play relatively defensively, and once we get past the, the big stuff comes out, and that's where spells like Dragonfire that we'll see in the next episode are going to come into play. Again, our our access to everything is rather limited. As things come out, we'll be able to sort of get a clearer picture on stuff. But those are the cards and the rarities, or at least some of the cards and the rarities, so we can sort of peel the uh, peel the curtain back a little bit. Uh, the other stuff that we know about, Brendan, unless you want to, anything else you want to sort of dig in on? So the last thing I want to dig on, and I know it's for next episode, but I, I gotta get into it. Get so there, into there's it. a there's a there's a pretty clear dichotomy between some of the cards we talked about, and that's that they are the you know they're they're sort of subtext. They're either dreamborn or storyborn at this point, and they're either a hero or a villain at this point. So those are going to be key sort of. Uh, subtypes. I've no idea, uh, it, you know, how they will play out, but it's like storyborn or heroborn, villain or hero, and then we get into like the actual creature type, like it's a dragon or it's a pirate or something like that. So I have a feeling that you might have some deck building restrictions, or at least you'll have payoffs for being like full dreamborn or maybe full storyborn or just like heroes and villains, something like that. Just, just something to think about as we as we as we lead into episode two. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to dig too deep into it because. Uh... Episode 2 is going to be pretty ripe with uh, more speculation as we dig more into the anatomy of the cards, the what things might mean, decipher some of the clues. But the last little bit over here is I want to talk about organized play. And we know that they are going to have an organized play. And one of the questions that I asked Disney Lorcana that they were gracious enough to respond to is that organized play... Uh, will be announced and sort of fleshed out in the spring. So we are not terribly 
far away from it. We're still a couple months away. But for a product that's launching in August, to have an organized play structure announced is pretty significant. And I think that that's important because, um, yeah, you want to sell product, but you also want to keep people engaged and, and thriving well beyond just opening their cases and ripping packs. Yeah, and it's something to speculate about, but organized play is a very, very broad spectrum. Right? So I was actually pretty surprised to see organized play mentioned at all. When I first was exposed to Lorcana, I thought it would be you know, completely casual, like very focused on tabletop, kind of pick up and play, but it does not look like that so far. But you know, speaking to the, the the spectrum of organized play, it can be organized play in terms of they're supporting local game stores. You should reasonably expect if you're in a densely populated area to have like a weekly uh, thing to play the game for. But my question is like the big tournaments, like is Disney Lorcano Worlds, Disney Lorcano like um, regionals, qualifiers, et cetera, et cetera, because that's when it gets really, really exciting. I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself because... Those things are not necessarily beneficial for a game. You know, the game design might not lend itself to that sort of competition. But for me as a player, with them talking about organized play, putting this much of an emphasis on it, seems like they're going to have some top end of, of, of competitive play. But like, let's be real, man. Like, uh, again, you and I are coming at this from the perspective of uh, we're broadcasters. Uh, you're a pro player as well. Um, we, we have stakes in this from a selfish perspective of we want there to be a big deal because we love it. We love consuming it. We love being involved in it. Um, I think that, I mean, Disney has all the structure to make this freaking awesome. When you're talking about Disney worlds, you're talking about actual Disney world. Like you're, you're actually talking about Disney world in, in Orlando or whatnot. Like you're talking about this from the, the entire perspective of dude, how great would it be? It's like, you know november whatever and we're all in disneyland because there's a uh the world championships where they got all the regional winners or all the the national champions that come in and it's this grandiose thing and it's really cool now obviously we don't know the spectrum or the scope of which they want to promote this but they have gone on record saying that there will be an organized play structure now whether that's just little local tournaments that they're going to send, you know, uh, prize kits to the LGSs for, or if it's a grander scheme where they're like, Hey, we've got a $25,000, you know, major going on in, uh, I don't know, in, in, in Philadelphia or whatever, you know, where people are going to drive out and play that's yet to be seen. But I, I, I would, I, I kind of think that if they're doing organized play, they're not going to half-ass it. I think that they're going to go for the whole enchilada. So I think the whole enchilada is just a little bit of a labor of love, to be honest. When it comes to like bottom line, it comes to profitability, at least short-term profitability, like those big tournaments that really just cater to the 1%. I'm not talking 1% sort of scale. I'm talking 1% in the terms of people that are, want to engage in that terms of thing. Um, I think that we've seen card games now in recent history tend to cut that out. Like you look at Magic and it's, it's you know, a lot of its success comes from tabletop. It comes from the casual scene. I think that those things are not conducive to that. Weekly tournaments, they are. So I think that those are going to be there no matter what, at least on a local scene. It really depends on Ravensburger and what they want to do with this. Because I talked about short-term profitability, but that doesn't necessarily equate to long-term profitability. And I think that marketing is 
in building like this sort of history and this like media for your game, which is what these large tournaments do. They build narratives, they build players, they give things, you know, people something to aspire to when they pick up the game, a, a sort of like an end game, like a, a long-term investment. I think that's critical to a game's sort of success in the long run. I think that, you know, We've seen some TCGs shy away from that to look more at the short term. Um, I, ho I, I hope that Lorcana does go for that long-term route, does give us that top-end OP structure. Um, but it, it really depends on Ravensburger because I think that at least initially, at least on launch, like that would definitely be, you know, if they were going to make it happen, happen it would be because they want to, not because it's going to generate the most money, in my opinion. All right. Uh, lots to be discovered still for everybody, us included. We're eagerly awaiting any little tidbits of information that drop. You can be sure that if we do hear something, you will also know. So uh, now's a good time to also just sort of head and go ahead and plug our Twitter account. You can go to at PodCanna and, uh, on Twitter and make sure that you're well plugged into that. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and all that jazz. But we've got listener questions, Brendan, uh, already. A lot of people are really eager about this. We got a lot of them. If you don't hear your question on this episode, it's likely because we're saving it for the next episode. Uh, ultimately, uh, thank you to everybody who submitted your questions. It really means a lot to us. So we're going to go through some of these, Brendan. Uh, you can start us off. Yeah, so this is one that I kind of answered, but we can just, I, I want to get Flake's opinion on it too. Um, I think I kind of, I maybe know it, but maybe you can flush it out a bit more. And this comes from D Root, um, David Root, actually Magic Gathering Pro Tour champion and person who whooped my butt on camera, which I will never live down. <laughs> D Root says, what would you expect slash be ha happy with as far as organized play for Lakana in 2024? I have no idea how serious they will take OP for this game. So I definitely just went on a little rant, but I would say for me personally as a player, I would actually like to see a system similar to what Flesh and Blood is doing right now. Um, I, I really love the ability to play the game at a regional level as like your first step up to big competition. And then for these bigger tournaments that are scattered kind of throughout the United States or throughout the world, just they're somewhat, somewhat local to like the calling structure, like the Grand Prix, and hopefully a top end of something like World Championships. I'm willing to, you know, I'd be okay if they sort of foregoed all of the regional stuff because I know it's it's definitely a hassle and just had a world championship, that would be great. But a robust pro, pro system, I know that would have pretty much everybody I know chomping at the bit. But um, Flake, what are you hoping for? All right. So again, perfectly selfish on my end here, but I see, I want something where on the lowest end, you have something akin to Friday Night Magic where there's, you know, go out there it's casual it's it's meant for new players to test the waters to see if they like playing the game against other people that they don't know i want a month i want, I want a monthly somewhere around the world major tournament something calling-esque once a month um you know i don't know how they can sustain it where it would be but i want something big like that where those tournaments allocate things like elo and and you have a rating system associated with that i want a tier three thing which is kind of like a regional or sorry a national championship to a degree and then i want a world i want like the whole shebang to be a world championship um I i'm i've never been a pro when it comes to card games i've qualified for pro status in in like in a uh, in in flesh and blood but as a broadcaster, I've always preferred to be behind, like, you know, in front of the camera instead of playing the card game. So I don't know. I've never really experienced pro play. So I don't know how outlandish that is or if it even it even fits. Dave Rude has been a Magic pro for a long time. He's been a flesh and blood pro for as long as I've known him. Um, so 
it, it, he would know a better structure to me. But in my opinion, I want to I want to know that I can go to my LGS. Uh, Dave Rude from uh, Harry Tarantula in Toronto, like that's where I go and play. I want to know that I can go to Harry Tarantula every, let's say, Thursday and be like, all right, I'm going to go there at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. There's going to be a Lorcana thing. I could win a promo card. I could win some packs, whatever. Go home, feel good. I also want to know that every month that I can look at a calendar and say, hey, there's a, a, a ten dollars or $20,000 tournament going on in Miami or, or in Philadelphia or in Los Angeles or something that, you know what, maybe I want to go out there and check it out or something like that. Or there's one, you know, some, maybe they have one in Europe too, in Asia or whatever. I want that as well. But I also want to, I want something where it's like, I want to go ahead and I want to try to be the national champion. And who knows, maybe there's a world champion. I think for a first year, I think that they're, they're probably in a boat where they might test it out because every card game that mm -hmm. comes out now has a million dollar prize purse associated to their first year, it seems. They're very incentivized to come in and just dunk on Magic. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't mean that to get anybody angry who likes Magic and is playing Magic. I also play Magic. But, like, it does seem like a lot of card games that come out, you know, Magic Gathering kind of has really cut back on its competitive play, its organized play, and its, you know, its larger tournament scene. Just comes in and kind of is just like, okay, boom, we're doing what Magic used to do. Come, you know, come play our game, travel the world, all that. And it gets a lot of people really excited because people miss that. Um, so yeah, I also would not be surprised that if they, if they came to market with that strategy, cause I think it's great PR too. I think it's fantastic PR. Um, and it seems like Ravensburger is kind of positioning themselves to, to do that. All right. Uh, we're winding down in terms of time, but we're going to get through one or two more. Uh, let's see. Uh, here's a very easy peasy one. This one's from Keith Bartram of Realm Games, a good friend and a great, uh, community advocate for card games saying... What characters do you hope get released first? Well, we've seen some of them. Uh, Brendan, you've got your Robin Hood, but we don't. Mm. you don't have your Mowgli yet. I need my Mowgli, you're right. But I think Mowgli might not land in the colors that I need him to <laughs> land in. Um, you know, Lorcana is a, a game where I think that the art's beautiful, the characters are really cool and iconic, but I'm more interested in play styles, right? Like, I want my the way that I enjoy playing TCGs to sort of be an option or be facilitated in the game so that that's what i'm looking forward to the most is to have flushed out archetypes of aggro mid-range control and maybe a little combo um and derivatives of that of course because that's what gets me excited as someone who's looking you know looking at a looking at a game looking at a potential meta and you know trying to sort of express myself and you know maybe maybe breaks that meta win some tournaments who knows uh, I'm always fall back to the fact that it's like just give me a Han Solo deck and I don't care what the hell it is. Again, the fact that Disney bought Star Wars IP like in my head as like that just opened the door for me. That's a whole other you know podcast episode down the line. I think that of the characters we see now, a Buzz Lightyear. I think Buzz Lightyear would be pretty badass. I think that would be kind of cool. Uh, a lot of space-esque type things. I think it's the closest to Star Wars as I think I'm going to get uh, based off of the standard uh, Disney, Disney uh, you know, fair. So that's what I'm I'll noticing say. Noticing a trend here. Yeah, dude, space <laughs> is rad, man. Space is awesome. I just want space-related stuff. Uh, let's, do, let's do one more, Brendan, and um, you can pick. All right, so we've got uh, Capolo here. Why should I, a semi-competitive card gamer uh, that is impartial to Disney, get into Lorcana? I think that's a fantastic question because, um, you know, I, I've been in this. I've been in your. I've been in those shoes, right? I was in those shoes with Marvel Snap, 
I was very, very impartial to the Marvel Universe. This might be a huge spoiler to some people who listen to that podcast, but I had, I actually had negative interest in the IP. I actually didn't like it, um, which I know is probably blasphemy at this point. But it, I think that if you look at Lorcana, you look at how they're setting up to release, we've talked about it throughout the pod, like they're doing this right. And I look at these cards and I look at the design and it just looks so calculated and so, so set up to just be an amazing game right and i if you're a semi-competitive card gamer it's because you enjoy you enjoy the aspect of playing trading card games you enjoy playing against people you enjoy that that part of it and i think that lorcana will facilitate that it doesn't mean you got to go pick up a million booster boxes and have every single card or you know be trying to chase the market and all that other silly stuff that comes with these tcgs but i think that lorcana looks like that game that you can go and have fun on a weekly basis um, at your local game store, and then hopefully, like me and Flake both want, play some larger tournaments and you know aspire to some some sort of sort of bigger things or you know like a longer firm version of what we would consider to be the the end game of of Lorcana. I'm gonna answer you, Capolo. First of all, Capolo, great guy. Uh, I'm gonna answer you very very candidly here. Uh, why should you get into it if you're impartial to Disney? Why should you get into Lorcana? I would say you should probably wait. In all honesty. Uh, I'm, I'm, I like Disney. I'm a fan of card games, obviously. I wanted to get into this card game because I like Disney, and I know that if Disney's getting involved with something, it's probably because the quality of it has been vetted and reviewed, and, it, and it's, it's going to be great. That said, you might feel differently. If you have no attachment to the characters, to the lore, or any of that... There's a good option for you to say, well, like, you know, like a lot of people will get into a game because they just like the characters that are involved in it or they'll get they'll buy a book or they'll or watch a movie or a TV rendition of a video game because they liked what came pr prior to it. If you don't like that, then the only thing that might appeal to you is the gameplay and the mechanics. And we don't know what that is yet. So it's hard for me to sell the game to somebody who is just looking for a good card game to play when we don't know what all the mechanics are. What I will say is based on what we've seen from the cards as limited as it is, it seems that there's enough there that between the various color palettes, the keywords we're seeing, some of those mechanics, some of these mystery little emblems and pips and whatever, I suspect that there's it's going to be deep enough that there will be engaging gameplay, there will be layered gameplay, lots of decision-heavy gameplay that will appeal to the the it, like think about like Hearthstone. Hearthstone's selling point is deceptively simple, but like ridiculously difficult to a degree. And I kind of get that because when you pick up Hearthstone, you think it's the easiest thing in the world. Same. I thought the same thing about Flesh and Blood. But once you get into mm -hmm. the nitty gritty of it, you're realizing, wow, this is more than just trading damage. There's so much more, uh, you know, under the surface. And I feel that with Lorcan, and I mean that genuinely. I don't. I'm not saying that because I'm on a Lorcana podcast. I'm saying that because I truly mean that. I wouldn't make this podcast if I didn't believe that with uh, with what I'm saying. So my advice to you is not to blindly go ahead and throw your wallet at this. My advice to you is just wait for more information to come out. Wait for the rule set to come out, for more cards to come out. And if you like the gameplay, then, then definitely get into it. Absolutely. Um, this isn't I don't think that this is sort of, a, this is obviously not a scam in any way. This is definitely a, a card game that I think that people will compete in, collect with, and just, you know, it really dive into uh, headfirst. Yeah. <clears throat> and I would just, I would probably reiterate off that, that I, I would consider myself 
pretty much impartial to the Disney IP. Like there is some nostalgia, I guess, but you know, I'm just one of those like I'm a little bit hardcore on the card game run where it's like I, the nice art, it's, it's icing on the cake, but it, the gameplay is pretty much what I'm interested in. And you know, just walking through these cards, it, it looks like it looks like it will be there. But you can just sit back, and uh, we're gonna get tons more information before it finally comes out. Anyway. Flake, let's go ahead and close that out. If you want to submit your question to be read out on the pod, just go ahead and shoot shoot it down in the YouTube comments below. I'm also very interested to hear your opinion on what the heck the pips are. Please tell me. Someone get us some insider information. I need to know what that is right now. Um, Flake and I are both on Twitter. Tw- uh, Flake is located at WatchFlake. I'm at BrendanAPG. Um, we are aiming so with the with the podcast, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting because this will be a weekly podcast. But to start out. You know, we'll probably be a bit more spaced out as the information trickles out. You know, we do have all the way until August till we finally get those cards in our hand. Uh, Flake, anything from you before we close on episode one? Nothing. I'm just excited for this. Again, if you're listening to this and you like the podcast, please subscribe, uh, follow us on Twitter, support us uh, in that way. Again, the best way that you can support us, obviously, is just is just listening to us. But uh, we'll we'll come up with better ways that you can do that. But for now, we're just happy that you uh, you joined us for our our, uh, our launch of the uh, this awesome uh, experience thanks everyone see you next week